Hello and welcome to another episode of Rare's Digital Dialogue series. In this podcast, we're connecting with some incredible thinkers, organizers, activists, and food providers to better understand relationships to land, food sovereignty, indigenous rematriation, and relational accountability. My name is Taryn, and I'm a part of the Rare Collective. For today's episode, we'll be speaking with Olivia Moore and Kessie Kembal from the Eastern Woodlands Rematriation Collective. Eastern Woodlands Rematriation Collective is a grassroots organization based in what is now known as the Northeastern United States. They're aiming to recenter Indigenous food and kinship systems, which they say is restoring the spiritual foundation of our livelihoods through regenerative food systems. Olivia Moore is a member of the Penobscot Nation and the Two-Spirit Community. They are a mother, child welfare advocate, and co-founder of the Eastern Woodlands Rematriation Collective, working on food systems in tribal communities across the Northeast. Kessie Kemball is a Mi'kmaq food provider. Growing and sharing food in the community is the backbone of what she loves and what helps her build relationships for food sovereignty. Please check out more about Eastern Woodlands Rematriation Collective online. They're an incredible group of caretakers, and we're very grateful to Olivia and Kessie for sharing their experiences with us. I really enjoyed our discussion, and I know you will too. Enjoy! Kwekwe, thank you for inviting us into conversation, and I really I really look forward to, to the dialogue and hearing from you all also. Um, so my name is Olivia Moore. I am a member of the Penobscot Nation, which is um, a tribe in so-called, um, what's now so-called Maine. Um, it's a part of the Wabanaki Confederacy of Tribes. So sometimes you might hear me refer to our organizing work um, and referring to Wabanaki or Wabanaki um, tribes or nations. Um, there is no singular Wabanaki nation. Um, so just to kind of clarify that, but um, we do as a see of the Penobscot, Pazmaquoddy, Mi'kmaq, Maliseet and Abenaki people in this territory, um, you know, have a strong relationship um, and organize closely together. Um, so I'm a member of the Penobscot Nation, um, uh, raised in tribal community here. I still live in my traditional territory, though not um, on the reservation anymore, closer down to the coast now. Um, I, two-spirit community organizer, I'm a, a parent, uh, mom, I have a, a five-week-old baby and an almost five-year-old. Um, uh, and yeah, so lots of different kind of facets of, of organizing throughout my life. A lot of it kind of centered around child welfare, um, tribal child welfare system reform, as well as state and federal um, system reform. And I do um, still do some of that advocacy work for the Indian Child Welfare Act in um, state court here in, um, in the United States. And um, and then, yeah, most of organizing through a collective, the Eastern Woodlands Rematriation Collective. I'm um, one of the, the co-founders of that collective. We, we came together in, um, in formation as Eastern Woodlands Rematriation in 2017. 
though all of us had been, um, you know, organizing, working, doing heavy lifting in our um, tribal communities long before that. Um, and like through our food systems and, you know, cultural revitalization work, we um, developed relationship with other um, co-founders who are both um, Nipmuc folks. So they are further south in so-called um, New England um, here in so-called United States. And so kind of like through some of those relationships, we were really seeing how we were, you know, doing a lot of Mm, a lot of similar but um you know community reflected work but that we were feeling really like isolated in in that work and really recognizing the need for building deeper relationships um, to be supported in our local context in our tribal communities specifically but also throughout the region and really um yeah, really the importance of like building those relationships across across the region and recognizing how these processes of colonization have really worked to, um, to isolate um, tribal communities and tribal folks, but also to disconnect um, tribal folks from one another, from our traditional, um, you know, trade routes, from our traditional social and political relationships across the region. And so in organizing Eastern Woodlands rematriation um, across, across a region, as we undertake our, our food sovereignty and rematriation work, um, there's these really beautiful ways that we're re-engaging, that we're both supporting um, these you know, organizers that are within our own tribal communities and you know, doing the work that's really reflective and responsive to what our communities need, but then also really engaging in these broader um, systems of support, which we'll, we'll talk more about, like how, how we're embodying that. Um, so I think I'll pause there and there'll be other opportunities to hear a little bit more and I will pass it over to, to Kessie. I hate introductions. Hi everybody. Um, my name is Kessie Waters Kimball. I always struggle with these. I don't know why it's like, but anyways, I currently live in Wabanaki territory in Vassalboro, Maine. I am Mi'kmaq. Um, my mother is a descendant from the Listigooch First Nations Mi'kmaq. Uh, we were both born and raised in Maine and have lived off reservation for forever. So I, I don't have any reservation connection like that. But um, yeah, um, my role really in EWR is, um, I feel like I'm, like a workhorse. I grow food. I cultivate an acre right now, but we've managed to like produce literal tons of food that we've been able to share out and just get um, that sharing of food in our community. I don't know how else to describe it, but that's like the backbone of like what I do that I love and that builds my relationships with Olivia and with our other community members. And we've built like a really strong network throughout this pandemic, just through sharing food. So I'm a little under the weather, so I'll just tap out there and <laughs> I'll say this. Sometimes when we're, um, and I, I do this, I'll be honest, Kessie, when I introduce myself to people, I very rarely remember, I don't, like I'm a terrible land acknowledger. I don't do it. And I tell people the reason is because I assume I belong everywhere that I am. So you don't need to introduce yourself. You just show up and 
you are already present and people totally will recognize that. Um, so well done for, you know, sticking to, we're gonna introduce ourselves and do things. Um, I will just comment on this and, and it's gonna be something that is um, not necessarily important to other folks, um, but as someone who lives on the, on the reserve uh, here in Canada, I have been in conversation with a few people in the last few days where there's a noticeable difference um, in the United States being on reservation and off reservation is a thing. And here we don't have reservations. Like that whole word isn't what's used. It's territories or reserves now. Um, so I remember coming to Canada when I was a kid and saying that I had just moved to the reservation and they lost their minds. They're like, we don't have those here. It's not a thing. Stop using that word. You sound white. And I'm like, well, listen, I don't know what's happening. I was 10, right? Like it was not a thing, but that is, it's one of those pieces of our politics and, and how big or how small sometimes language can be. Um, but that said, I'm an Oregon, like a West Coast kid. Um, as, as beautiful as the East Coast is, I've, I've yet to be there. Um, but I, I am going to ask a question um, and, and it's to each or both or how you wanna do this. What does the concept of rematriation mean to you um, either individually or um, as your as a collective, um, is is it similar to or different from like land back or how you see your work in relationship to those two things? Um, it's funny that we talk about rematriation like this. I my previous life I I was archaeologist, and so I had a lot of experience repatriating objects and repatriating human remains and things like that, and so. When I started working with Eastern Woodlands, I really struggled with understanding what rematriating meant. You know, I, I just, I didn't really understand it. I was too academic with it. And then my concept of it now is that rematriating is that spiritual energy that really informs our position on things like land back. You know, it's, it's that energy of reconnecting and desire to reconnect with land. And that's how I kind of view it. Um, cause like, even with like repatriating, it was like holding an object, holding pottery, holding bones in my hand. And I could make a connection that way to my ancestors and through rematriating, it's like a living connection with my neighbors and my like fellow warriors out in the field. So. Thanks, Cassie. Yeah, I really appreciate, um, you highlighting that rematriation often if people aren't even listening closely they're um <clears throat> they just sort of assume that we are talking about or have used the word repatriate or repatriation um so definitely that word or concept seems at least in the u.s context seems to have a stronger um grounding than rematriation um for for myself and thinking about to rematriate I mean, a, a kind of core component of the work, the process, the journey of rematriating is to restore our matriarchies. And there's not one, there's not one way that that is done, right? That um, one, uh, matriarchies, these, um, you know, political systems and structures that prior to colonization, um, you know, the nations, a lot of the nations in the, the Northeast, Eastern woodlands were traditionally 
matriarchal, um, but there's not one way that matriarchy was em embodied, right? Because our matriarchies really were developed in reflection and um, reflection of the earth, um, the earth and the land and the relationships that we as indigenous people um, being on those lands for millennia, thousands and thousands of years, you know, we developed our matriarchies, our, um, our, our political, economic, and social structures in reflection to the earth and um, in responsibility to, to the, the relatives in our specific territory. So there's not one way to rematriate. There's not one way that um, matriarchies looked prior to colonization. There's not one way that these that this work um, that, th that this work really you know it, it really needs to be reflective and responsive of the land, the communities where the work is being undertaken, the specific contexts in which in the histories um, that are situated there in the land and in the bodies, um, the human and more than human relatives there. So this is there's no one blueprint for rematriating, right? It is very, very highly um, specific. Um, and in thinking about the work of Eastern Woodlands rematriation and our work in rematriating indigenous food systems, um, the way that I think of it is so, you know, again, we are so we are um, a collective, a network of indigenous food and medicine producers here in the Northeast. And um, we're yeah working to really like build the capacity of existing food projects, but also to initiate food and medicine projects. And in in that um, work, we really recognize that the relationship to our food system, right, is is our relationship to the land and to the earth. And that as we reclaim and restore our indigenous ways of feeding ourselves and access to our traditional foods and traditional territories and waterways to be able to um, harvest and to cultivate um, and fish, you know, those, those foods, um, as we restore those relationships for our food systems, it's really going to um, be a foundation for reclaiming and rematriating our political and social structures also. So we really understand our food systems as um, an important grounding for, um, yeah, for the transformation um, and the reclamation of um, indigenous political and social structures. So we, we know that feeding our, our people, feeding our people, um, nourishing food, having access and like the, the um, that that work in of itself is beautiful and important part of just of justice, but we also know that it's laying the groundwork and helping us to re-engage in those relationships in a way that um, sets up us to be able to to do these broader uh, processes of of transformation that are really needed um, so that we can. Um, not just in indigenous communities, but so indigenous when when indigenous communities um, are able to live in reflection of um, our you know spiritual um, responsibilities and and obligations to the land and our relatives, human and more than human, in a particular place. When in the indigenous folks are situated, um, we will be able to lead, and we'll be able to lead um, transformation away from extraction, right? And away from um, hierarchies 
and away from um, the many systems of harm that settler colonialism and white supremacy um, and patriarchy have imparted on the land and, and the bodies um, on the land here in so-called United States. And um, I don't wanna speak for um, our relatives in other territories, but I imagine, um, you know, I, I, I hear, you know, them, them communicating about the importance of leadership of indigenous folks in, in transforming those relationships in other um, territories also. I could go on and on. Um, <laughs> and so I'll pause, so there's room for, for dialogue and, and questions, but there's so much more to really be said about, um, you know, how um, the, the framing, the values, but also how that translates in our actions and relationships. Um, rematriation is, is crucial for the well-being of all, not just um, the well-being and food sovereignty of indigenous people, but there's important gifts and lessons um, that can lead and support well-being for all people on the land here. Thanks, Kessie. Thanks, Olivia. Um, I appreciate what you're saying, Olivia, about, about rematriation and reclaiming of matriarchies looking different in, in different territories. And I can kind of see that being analogous to the way in, in food sovereignty movement, how we talk about, you know, that there are fundamental principles of food sovereignty and fundamental principles of agroecology, but that the way that those principles are enacted are different uh, in different places based on local contexts. And so our next question is, is about those principles. Like, are there some fundamental principles that you see um, as being essential to rematriation or as being essential e even more specifically to your work within Eastern Woodlands rematriation? I was trying, I don't want to take up too much space, but I'll, I'll share a little bit. I guess I, I haven't framed it this way and I don't know if I haven't, but, but so some of the things that come to mind though, I, again, this isn't necessarily the principles of rematriation, but um, some of the, I would say maybe, yeah, values, that, that come to mind are around the, the reclamation, like reclaiming collectivity. So really engaging, um, yeah, in, in collectivity, restoring our kin networks and relationships, again, with humans, more than human um, relations, water and land. So collectivity and also, I mean, very closely tied to that is reciprocity. Right, and being an important way that we engage in those relationships um, and, and the responsibilities um, within each of those within each of those relationships. Um, those are the, the first two that come to mind. I'll see Kessie, your thoughts. Yeah, this is where I struggle. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a hard time like understanding rematriation, like in like principles. Like I just know how to be, um, I find it being common sense, like on the land and, and building relationships with people and restoring um, access to healing on the land. And something that I was thinking of was just like how we talk so much about intergenerational trauma and how like that's like carried in our bodies and yet like the land we also carry in our bodies, this intimate knowledge and relationship with the land that is spiritual and healing. And so I just find like that to be like a principle of rematriation in a way of um, just facilitating that connection. And I don't know how to describe it academically. I just like know how to be <laughs> in teaching our kids, you know, and just that common sense of like sharing and compassion and 
but also like that responsibility. It's not all just proofy, you know, there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of sacrifice that goes into that as well. Guys, I, I'm going to stop for just a second as someone who calls herself an accidental academic. Um, don't use the words that we think belong to this space because they don't genuinely just tell us the, the truth of what it is to be connected because I do this to these guys all the time I'm like and I'll just go on this you know suddenly we're all our body is the river and we're doing these things and they're like that's so beautiful and I'm like no in my brain this is academic too and it is like what we what we are doing here together in this space is very much exactly what we're supposed to be doing but we need those you know ethereal words we need those ethereal feelings too because that's part of how that connection works for us. So, you know, don't, don't stop yourself from saying what you are thinking or how you feel, okay? Yeah, thank you for that. And, and yeah, when I heard um, Cassie saying that, I'm like, if, if people could get like a glimpse of Cassie in life, Cassie embodies this. And, and I don't know if how, how natural or not it comes for you, Cassie, but it just flows like your your generosity your thoughtfulness like your hard work um but also your humor within it right like you you really bust ass all the time and care for so many people and um yeah and have everyone smiling around you 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 really embody a lot of a lot of this um in how you carry yourself in the world so you don't yeah that's we won't get hung up on <laughs> on particular language and yeah it's like a landmine out there I'm telling you always find the wrong word <laughs> it's funny I in in sort of academic circles recently I actually was, I was listening to a talk by Sean Wilson recently and I think he said something like um that his, so much of his work is just trying to like learn how to be a, a good person and I'm like I think like and this is you know it becomes really like I mean complicated but simple in certain ways where I'm like I'm just trying to learn how to be a good person in what feels like a pretty toxic world a lot of the times and like what does it mean to practice you know reciprocity and responsibility and accountability like in this world that we live in and so I think I really appreciate that uh I think it's not and then also as an academic trying to like be like that's what I okay so the you know uh apparently we need to make that like a uh, visible for funders in, in some way or for for you know um and how do we sort of how do we be responsible in how we like work in those spaces and and um and and utilize resources in those spaces for community building and for to actually do work rather than like you know just talk about stuff all the time <laughs> um but my so my question um for you is actually about uh about these questions about obligation we've, we've been talking a lot about lately especially as we've been talking about potentially doing like an in-person activity or uh, an encounter event um, about um, the role of settlers, settler farmers, um, and when, especially again, when we're potentially going to be engaging folks who own land, who are on the land, um, 
within this context of land return and rematriation, um, can you share um, any of your thoughts or experiences around the roles of, and it, you know, it doesn't have to be settler um, farmers specifically, but you know, just thinking about di differential obligations and and um, and uh, especially around decolonization and land return. If you have any thoughts around that. Yeah, I guess um, one, and, and I think this was um, part of the previous question um, from Adrienne um, <clears throat> in thinking about is, is rematriation, you know, synonymous or like the same as land back. And for me, they are not the same thing. Um, for me, land back absolutely is a crucial, I, I feel like it's a crucial um, step within the reality that we are, are existing within. Land back is a crucial piece of a process of restoring matriarchal relationships, of rematriating, of um, indigenous folks being able to restore our relationships with the land and earth, and then how from that, again, our social and political relationships can um, be transformed. So I think land back um, is not in of itself um, rematriating that it provides an opportunity for indigenous people um, again to to um, engage in those relationships with the land and water and one another <clears throat> um, in ways where we're engaging with our responsibilities but just because land is held by um, indigenous people um, does not mean that that is in of itself transformative. It doesn't mean that just because the deed is held by indigenous people that then um, that is, you know, rematriation. Um, it can be indigenous people absolutely can engage with colonial um, systems of harm <laughs> and do. And so so it, it takes more than it, it being, um, you know, the traditional indigenous folks of that land becoming the, the title holders. Um, for me, that you, you have to be very intentional about building away from the systems um, of private um, land holding and um, land ownership if we are to actually rematriate. So um, again, just because it's indigenous people doing X, Y, Z does not mean that it's being done in a way where relationships um, are being, um, we're really embodying the, the types of relationships that um, are transformative and moving away from transactional and um, to relational. So I don't know, sorry if I missed parts of the question, but I think that's really important, for, at least in my mind, um, distinction between rematriation and land back. Another aspect of the land back um, movement that frightens me a little bit, it's just like how all of our um, like decolonize this everything gets co-opted and the language gets taken and used and I find that there are organizations out there that are you know land back or saying that they're land conservatorships that are not truly working with indigenous folks or doing what they say they're going to do and so I I find that I'm starting to be a little um, more cautious and when I hear the hash, hashtag land back stuff because um, yeah I'm, I'm in fear that that it's going to be co-opted and 
more land's going to go into trusts and be out of touch for the people. So. I really, I really appreciate those distinctions that you're making. Um, and just as a, a follow up, I guess um, we've we've also been thinking a lot about the relationship between rematriation land back um, and you know our own relationships to land, and then within the larger question around de or anti colonial commitments. And so, what what do, what's the relationship between? anti-colonial commitments, again, especially for folks who, um, for non-Indigenous folks or white settler folks who are engaging in these movements and really wanna, and, and really want to help support and build those movements. Um, uh, do you see, or have you seen any sort of specific practices that you think are really useful or important in terms of building, um, uh, a movement that might be more around along the lines of, you know, anti-colonial rematriation movement work, as opposed to um, something that might be, you know, something that uh, might be more sort of co-optable within the larger uh, rhetoric or, or larger um, public. This is, um, it's difficult because when I start thinking about what potential solutions and then I'm like oh but asterisk right like oh, oh. um it's one of the trains of thought that I'm having and it connects to the the land back right because okay so land land back for me is land being returned to um the indigenous um folks tradition you know traditional like folks indigenous to to that like the specific land there but right as I mean, as you know, many indigenous people know, um, I mean, we, we weren't relating to the land, like we owned it or hold, held title. And also like the, we didn't have like these really um, firm boundaries, right? We didn't have this like, um, you know, there were some areas where all oh, the river, you know, and this kind of demarcates, um, you know, this the kind of edge of one nation and um, the beginning of another nation, but there was also, it was very common for there to be um, overlapping land and space in between. That was shared space, that was um, celebration space that we would come together and we would all be, um, you know, harvesting clams and we would be having summer celebrations or in, in important political um, exchanges in those parts of our territory. We also know that, um, Right, that there were not these like really firm boundaries of the, you know, <clears throat> all throughout our territories. We know some of the nations um, that lived in a territory completely, um, you know, that, that they are not um, organized and do not exist as tribal nations anymore. So what of that land, that land is still indigenous land. Um, and then, okay, let's say we have a piece of land and we can know what the, the tribal nation of, you know, responsible to that land is. Um, <clears throat> here in the United States anyways, um, a lot of the tribal government, I was in my, I, my tribal government, um, I'll just speak for my own, you know, my tribal government now that is in place is, is a government system and structure that has been given to us, forced on us, 
by the United States. So it is not our traditional matriarchal structure of decision-making. Um, and it, it, is a, it is a colonial system of decision-making. And that means that a lot of those values, colonial values, relationships, um, exploitation shows up um, in how decisions are made by um, by that government system and structure. I, I don't think it is just. So to think about having all lands turned over to our tribal governments to make decisions, that, that is not rematriation either, right? Because um, unfortunately, it, it's not our traditional way of making decisions. Um, and it's actually, you know, colonial structures and there's a fair amount of harm in the name of our people and culture that are being done in that space and what I'm saying you know some people will not you feel uncomfortable hearing that but also a lot of native people will be like yep 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 <laughs> we'll, we'll hear the truth in that um, and it's it's an uncomfortable truth that we that at least mostly internally we need to be having within our tribal nations but it's but it's a reality and so it doesn't mean there's like a really quick answer for like I don't know it, it makes it really complicated like who's legitimate you know like who's a legitimate voice for like what should happen. I struggle with it. I'm struggle with it in this collective formation of Eastern Woodlands rematriation as a Penobscot person, but I'm not trying to position myself speaking for the land, for all Penobscot people, for future generations, but there's important like conversations that we do need to be having. We do need to name these things I'd say I have more questions than answers, but it's important that we're in relationship and talking about <coughs> these things. And um, I'm happy to pause there and um, <clears throat> and would like to later to share some more thoughts um, on ways that especially um, settler farmer folks, you know, can can engage um, in relationships that can be supportive of rematriation. And, and food sovereignty um, for all people. But. Thank you for that. Um, I, I have to be honest, I, I do have a question. Um, and frankly, I would rather go to the question after that one, just because I'm mindful of our time and stuff. Do it, do it. Um, so the question was, was about you know, capitalism and, and the context of remuneration. But I'm actually more curious and interested in your thoughts about Indigenous food sovereignty in this context and how this fits and the things that you do and the way that you present into the world. And, and you talked about Kessie's way of being in the world. Um, so I would really love to hear about that um, more, so, more so than the politics of it, because you guys, I, I get the impression and I know having done food sovereignty work in my community, the politics happens every day but you don't very often get to talk about like the feeling of that work in it. I feel like we do a good job keeping politics out of our food sovereignty work. Um, and even like in my mind, there's times where I'm like, you know, Wabanaki food sovereignty, like, what does that mean? Does that mean we don't take care of our neighbor? <laughs> you know, do we not bring food down to the hungry kid down the street? And so for me, food sovereignty is, it is for all. And, and just by saying Wabanaki food sovereignty, all that means is that I'm just going to prioritize making sure that some people that I know get some food first and then, you know, share it out. But the main thing that um, food sovereignty, like 
embodies it for me is, is sharing the sharing of food, the sharing of energy of love, because that's really what you're doing when you're making a meal and sharing it with somebody and inviting them into your home or bringing food to someone. And, um, the actual like labor of growing the food is it's, I've, that's like a whole separate thing, you know, and then we pull all that food in and we preserve it. We set it up. We work with other, um, like food security councils to get like pantry items and stuff. And, and we ultimately have like a little informal food pantry where we're just getting food to people that are in need. And, and it doesn't matter who you are. If I hear that somebody's hungry, I'm going to fill up my trunk with some food and bring it to you. So that that's what food sovereignty is to me and putting that energy out of just sharing and not worrying about like how much, you know, money it costs or how much I'm wasting or whatnot, like just the sharing energy and having that come from within, I find that it, it works. It's, it's worked. I mean, you're not going to make a million dollars in the food sovereignty, <laughs> you know, industry. So, <laughs> but it's about, you know, lifting up your community and, and just building that deeper, stronger, um, knowing what's going on with your neighbor, like, and bridging those gaps of people that have drastically different political views than you. And, and it's like, you kill them with kindness, you know, just by sharing that damn food. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's a really important um, piece that you, you highlighted, Cassie, is <clears throat> that Wabanaki food sovereignty, indigenous food sovereignty, that again, when thinking through and, and living through um, a matriarchal way of being is we're taking care of who's in our territory, right? We recognize um, them as our responsibility. And so when we're thinking about um, restoring matriarchies, it's, it's really knowing that like within matriarchies, matriarchies, we, you know, people who were, were here in our, in our homes, <clears throat> it's our responsibility to care for the needs of, of all of those beings, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, caring for everyone who's, who's here now. And um, so I think that's an important part of it, that Wabanaki food sovereignty um, really serves, serves for the, the, the food sovereignty, the well-being, food justice for, for all that's in our territory. Um, and so in thinking about like how we're, so Kessie's talking about, um, you know, the, the, the food production. So producing, um, emphasizing, you know, traditional, <clears throat> traditional foods, not exclusively um, traditional foods <clears throat> being produced, um, being gathered, um, grown by um, indigenous folks. Um, but we're also so enhancing that capacity so they can do more to feed their kin networks again. Um, so that's, I guess that's another way of talking about what Kessie was saying that um, in our communities, right, we, we think about our kin. It's not about tribal enrollment. <laughs> it's not about blood quantum. It's our kin, right? Like who's our family? Um, and family extends beyond um, whether someone is indigenous or indigenous community member or not. And when we're really engaging in matriarchal um, understandings of kin, um, we recognize the the relation that and the responsibility that we have to all beings. Um, and so so the, the food production, food um, distribution, um, during the, the fall and winter, a lot of efforts of some of our indigenous food producers shifts then to 
that, like Kessie was saying, kind of like a, a, a mobile food um, pantry. Also, um, you know, the, the preserving of, of foods and distributing them out. We also have secured some grants where we're um, purchasing food from from all kinds of indigenous food producers and delivering them without cost to um, our, our tribal communities, <clears throat> but not only tribal members. We also, some of the other things that, so we're really intentional about how can we create spaces for the knowledge, knowledge exchange. So knowledge, so the exchange of um, techniques and strategies of how we're, of, of where to, to gather um, foods, to how, how to do that in, in good ways. So we're in good relationship with the food and the land of, of those places, recognizing the different um, medicine, right? The different um, healing properties and ways of food gathered in different parts of our territory um, and, and sharing those out, making those accessible to our people again. So it's um, all these different pieces of, of the relationship of the, the food that we're nurturing within the collective and providing opportunities for that. We also um, have created um, a Wabanaki Community Herbal Apothecary. And within that, we have um, a Wabanaki Herbal Apprenticeship, where we have um, traditional medicine people who um, are training other medicine keepers within um, all of our Wabanaki communities to, um, yeah, to be sure that um, we're reclaiming and transmitting um, our different cultural knowledge around our, our medicines. And we're also, you know, distributing medicines throughout Wabanaki communities connected to that um, and a, um, a, a growing piece of the work coming out of the Wabanaki community apothecary is um, is tr reclaiming traditional birth work, which we're um, starting to put some more really intentional effort around, and we will be um, holding um, in in the Northeast, um, so-called United States Indigenous birth work gathering, probably early um, early er, early late spring, and um, and we are going going to be launching an in, uh, a Wabanaki uh, postpartum doula fund <clears throat> here in the coming weeks. Cassie, I know this is probably news to you because <laughs> just been rolling on it. Um, so really recognizing um, all of these kind of outgrowths and, 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 and there's all kinds of different pieces that we're doing and a lot of it, we're, um, it really, and we're just kind of, I need to be clear, we're talking from the context of like Wabanaki communities. We have um, leaders and organizers within the collective that are in tribal communities throughout the, the Northeast. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, pieces of the work that's being done in their communities that we're, you know, we're not really speaking to or articulating on behalf of. And it's really important to us that the work that, and there, we don't have native people going into other uh, people's tribal communities and, or we don't have like pre um, prescribed kind of programs and that we're like launching in different places we are supporting the natural leadership um in in each place that really knows and is responsive to what the community needs and the community strengths um are what else do we have going on Kessie there's I think there's a million different threads but 
um rematriation school yes yes <laughs> yes the rematriation school is a really uh, big piece of that work where honestly we're in a place of needing to do more to develop our capacity um to to really to do more um but we're in the beginning stages of um developing a rematriation school where um we can really intentionally engage um uh youth children but also recognizing all of us as um as learning um everyone as teachers and everyone as students within the rematriation school and um yeah there's a lot of really important um work I want to be mindful of of time um yeah so there's there's a lot of different pieces around um hunting butchering fishing um seaweed um you know seaweed some some people wild harvesting some people there's another project we're supporting where they're working on the the cultivation of seaweed and then the processing <laughs> excuse me so that these foods can be um accessible to our people again um, and so we can so that also requires you know education around like how to process store use these foods um, and it's been challenging because a lot of the avenues of doing that before were these in-person um, you know community gatherings that were already existing and <clears throat> we would you know, prepare food, show up, and you could do educating of people, and they could have opportunity to be exposed to these foods again, and you could talk about it. In my community, we're not having those gatherings right now. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, yeah, COVID has been a, an interesting time of finding new ways to, um, you know, keep the these, um, yeah, like keep keep this work going in in new ways and, um. Yeah, we have some community care spaces that we create as well. But uh, in, in addition to, um, <coughs> excuse me, I'm gonna be cut off because <coughs> I'm losing my voice. <laughs> you get excited about stuff and you just want to keep going. I get it. I totally get it. Um, I, and I have to tell you guys. So in in my previous life, in my previous job, um, I ran a food security and food sovereignty program that was all about sustainability with my mom. Um, so she was our, our greenhouse grower, our educator, our community um, engager, um, and we had a 12,000 square foot greenhouse. We had a 60 by 120 foot uh, herbal garden that we used to feed our herbal apothecary. We kept chickens, we kept horses, we had a community kitchen, we did cooking classes. And when that program ended for a variety of reasons, my mom moved over to health services working for our community government to be able to do those things at a scale where she was capable and had assistance. Um, so she still runs our community garden. She still teaches. She does a soup share class on Thursday nights, guys. It's the best ever where food gets delivered. It's a package that she's figured out how to portion. Um, 20 people get a delivery of food and they go on Zoom and they learn how to make soup with her every week. And people don't always like, I never thought about it because I've lived with my mom my whole life. So I just assumed that soup was like, there's a, there's a, there's an order. You put, you know, meat in the bottom, you put certain vegetables in the bottom and, and then you add liquids to go with that. And then I watch people and they're like, I've always just thrown water in a pot and added vegetables. And I'm like, Ugh. and I'm just like a, the biggest soup snob, right? Like I have this horrible moment where I'm like, I, I've apparently lived different than other people, but I watch my mom engage the community and how to like 
how to connect that they can go outside and pick a couple things in the spring and turn, you know, some food into a meal, how they can turn, you know, a little bit of something that they figured out how to grow on their porch into how to connect to their neighbor and how to connect with themselves. And I hear in, in both of you guys that these are just, it's, it's like listening to my mom. It's literally just the thing that makes sense to you in the world. And on, on one hand, I, I feel at home in that. And on the other hand, I'm like, I just, I'm going to carry you guys around in my pocket for a little while because I want other people to get to experience how normalized it is to just know that you are going to make sure that your kin are cared for, that you are doing the things that are important to you for the reasons that matter to you. And you don't have to qualify those things. They're just the truth of what you're doing. Um, I'm, we, we could probably sit here all afternoon and I'm sure we have a thousand other questions we could ask, but I wanna thank you both for sharing the bits that you shared the bits that you didn't share and the bits that you shared by accident because they just come out in how you speak. Um, it was it was wonderful to listen to because like I said, I don't get to work every day with my mom anymore. I mean, I still live with her, but there are some days where the world is busy and we don't talk about those things. And I forget what it's like to be able to, to know that the stuff that you're doing is important to others in a way that you take for granted sometimes. And, and just, I, I'm, I'm constantly doing that with folks is reminding them and I'm gonna do the same thing with you, even if you do it for each other, um, what you're doing is it matters. And we're grateful to be part of that, just even to hear about it. So thank you. Thank you so much. I wanna get on your, your mom's soup list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if there is any re like link or I don't know if there's any like public facing space for what she's doing, it would be great. I'd love to follow and, and learn. She she does. Um, it, it's actually so she, like I said, she works for community government. Healthy Six Nay is a Facebook page that advertises all of her activities. If you're ever if you're ever looking for like where to get ideas and thoughts and, and things for what communities are doing up here. Um, yeah. every, every season they do a different, um, it's a, it's essentially a leisure guide is what they call it. So outdoor activities, um, some of them are sport related, some of them are outdoor, some are cultural and some are food and nine times out of 10, they all relate to food in some way because it, <laughs> you you <gotta> know, eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's a youth group and they make food, but there's a youth group and they help do things. They do fundraisers, but my mom does stuff. Um, she does that. She does something else in the wintertime and she's done it before. And it is um, stories around the fire, which is classified as a cultural event. All it really means is she brings a pot of soup to the community garden and people come and there's a different host every week and they just tell stories. And it's what we would have done traditionally in the wintertime when we were gathering together. And so that was, and we've talked about that a little bit in this collective because there are times when it's important to sit and tell stories. And, and we're really trying to make use of those moments to be able to engage, especially when you're a farmer and you're working the land, you know that there are times when the world is fallow for a reason and we need to fill ourselves up back in. So um, yeah, Healthy Six Nay, it's called, because we're at Six Nations and Haudenosaunee territory. So um, her, her stuff is always there. And the leisure guide can be downloaded whole so that you can, you know, in case you need more projects to work on. I always limited my mom to 22. I don't know how that worked, but that was the number. I'm like 22 
projects that you're cut off now. So if, if you're wondering what the number is, that's the one. That's great. That's great. And if, if I could just, I just want to take, because um, I, I want to say, I, I don't, for me, I don't think at all I take <clears throat> what I'm doing for granted because I feel like I have to be super, super intentional um, to, to create a different experience than I had on the land and, and growing up. I grew up hungry. I grew up in violence and afraid and not protected and taken care of in a lot of ways. Um, and so it's really a part of my, it, it is not just a part, it is like central to my healing and, and care, raising my, my children um, and doing this work. It's like, some people could say trauma response, um, that too, um, but also really, um, really healing and like necessary for my existence and trying to create a different future um, and reality in this moment for, for other relatives around me. So I just want to say, I, I don't feel like I'm taking it for granted because I didn't, ha I didn't always have it. And I'm trying to experience it now as a grown person. Oh, you're doing a wonderful job at it. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you liked what you heard, check out some of our other digital dialogues, which can be found on our website and wherever you get your podcasts. A big thank you to Olivia and Kessie for sharing from the land and from the heart. Another big thank you to my dear friends and fellow Rare Collective members, Sarah Rotz, Lauren Kepkowitz, Danielle Bosno, Adrian Licker Xavier, and Ayla Fenton. And thank you to our research assistants, past and present, including Stephanie Morningstar, Sonia Hill, Jessica Ross, and Jaron Richards. We'd also like to thank the National Farmers Union's Indigenous Solidarity Working Group for their ongoing collaboration, as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council for their funding support. That's all for this episode. Thanks for sharing these important conversations.